Welcome back to Talking Movies with Ty and Teresa. I'm Teresa. And I'm Ty. And today we are going to go into our second movie starring Humphrey Bogart. To Have and Have Not. Um, which is actually, this would be the first film with him and Lauren Bacall. Yep. His future wife at the start of the movie. Well, no, not, not at the start of the movie. They were not together at the start of the movie. No, I think they got together during the production. I gotcha. So... Um, let's go into a little bit where this falls after Casablanca. Uh, I believe this came out in 1944, so uh, Casablanca came out at the very beginning of 1943, so this would have been a year, year and a half later, somewhere around there. And there's a lot of um, similarities, I would say. It seems almost like they were trying to make it again. Yeah, I... There are a lot of elements that were kind of lifted from Casablanca for this movie. Um, so, yeah, I think they were kind of trying to catch lightning in a bottle for a second time. Yeah, and I don't think it worked. I don't think... Well, maybe it did. How did this movie do, uh, reception-wise, after it was released? Was it a big hit? Uh, I don't know that much about how it was received. I think it was successful. I mean, it certainly led to um, public fascination with... Bogey and Bacall, um, how much of that was due to the film and how much of it was just due to their kind of budding relationship, I don't know. But um, certainly in subsequent years, um, become quite acclaimed, uh, in part just because Howard Hawks is such a, the, the director, um, is such a um, massively popular director among like auteurist critics. Um, like, he's one of the signature auteurs, you know, the French were coming up with the auteur film theory. Howard Hawks is one of the sort of signature examples. Um, so for anybody that doesn't know, I, auteur theory is, uh, I don't know, a little too complex to really unpack here. But basically, the initial idea was um, there were artists in Hollywood that had... Uh, um, sort of a consistent artistic vision that ran throughout their work, um, much in the same way that, you know, novelists uh, have a tendency to sort of explore the same themes again and again and have a sort of identifiable style. Um, at the time, uh, directors generally were not writing their own scripts. Um, they might contribute to them, but they weren't generally getting screenplay credit except for certain directors who started out as screenwriters like Preston Sturgis or Billy Wilder. Um, and there was a tendency within Hollywood to, um, especially people that were making like genre movies, like westerns, gangster movies, um, to uh, sort of denigrate them as just uh, entertainments rather than art and the directors as just kind of craftsmen as opposed to artists. And the... French intellectuals at Cahiers du Cinema were like, fuck that, and kind of advanced the auteur theory, which kind of elevated these directors to the status of artists, and Hawks was one of the biggest examples. Like, They, I think, are... Hawks was very popular, very successful in Hollywood, but he didn't win a lot of awards. Uh, and... Uh, in the years since uh, the auteur theory kind of was 
first uh, um, advanced, he's become uh, one of the kind of sacred filmmakers of classic Hollywood. Oh, really? Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Um, so, going back to Hawks, though, the... I So, I wonder then, because the story of how this came to be was him and Ernest Hemingway. That's uh, how the story goes, whether that is... Um, I, I would assume that that came from a well, Hawks interview, because it sounds like the sort of thing he would say. I don't... It sounds like kind of Hollywood myth. Well, we haven't but, said what that story is. Right. The story is that Hawks was telling Hemingway um, while they were drinking together that he could make a good film out of Hemingway's worst novel. And that's the genesis for... But you're saying he's... Throughout his works, he had this French avant-garde kind of vibe that went... The novel itself wasn't didn't really have a French connection until they made the movie. Like, he brought that in. Was that, you think, a way to do a callback to Casablanca? Uh, I mean, it was also made during World War II, so it may have just been to make it more topical. Because um, to originally give it, a it was element. Cuba. I believe so. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the story is reminiscent of Casablanca. The details, you know, the... Um, the setting, uh, you know, the piano player. Um, it's just, uh, there are, I don't know, it, the whole movie seems like almost well, a... Well, I do not remember, so, in the film, also, can we just take a moment to say how hilarious it is that his name is Captain Morgan? <laughs> Classic. I was, I, that, I, I think I need to dig in there, like, is Captain Morgan, is that just like, Pure coincidence, the rum and, and Steve. So. Okay, well, um, I was just waiting for him to lift his leg at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Inya, or McCall did. Oh, Ooh. anyway, so uh, I would say that uh, there's that scene with Captain Morgan, and I don't recall their name, but the French Revolutionist husband that he risks himself to go pick up that guy and his wife where that guy is the french revolutionist husband do not remember his name says to steve humphrey bogart's character that he's always afraid and he's like i wish i could borrow some of your nature like he has like this kind of monologue where he's sort of praising steve for being so bravenier and cool under pressure and and he wants some of that which almost seemed like what a lot of people would have said to Rick's character, or Humphrey Bogart as Rick in Casablanca, like, like maybe what Captain Renault was thinking when he would, he, he seemed to like look up to him and have like this admiration that was then actually put into words here in that scene. So that seemed a little bit like what people would have thought when they watched Casablanca. Um, I will say, though, just on its own, just this film on its own, you had mentioned its popularity possibly stemming from the chemistry between Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, I thought there was a lot of chemistry. I would, I, I loved the scenes that they had together. I felt like those were the best scenes um, for me. 
Eddie's character kind of annoyed me. Really? Well, like, it, it was like this comic relief, just so, like, not even wittingly put in. Like, it's just in-your-face comic relief. Like, we're supposed to laugh at him because he's a drunkard, which uh, seems a little lazy. Um, I don't know. I, I, yeah, there's probably a comic relief element, but I think it was more important just in terms of the relationship between him and Bogart and uh, how protective Bogart is of him. Um, I think it's more about revealing an aspect of Bogart's character. Um, plus, them capturing Eddie at the end is sort of what led to the climax. Right, that's true. But at the same time, they could have done that with another character. Well, they would have had to have invented another character. I mean, could have done it with Bacall, I suppose. I think they could have done it with Frenchie. What? what that's it wasn't is. important enough. They would I have had to elevate that role. They to have a good chemistry. Plus, you know, he ends up, um, Steve ends up staying on and taking on the risk of getting the bullet out of French Revolutionist's husband. Um, insert name here. It because of his relationship with Frenchie and his mom, like it seemed like he was, they were talking. Not saying and he didn't have a good relationship, it. but the other thing is, you know, that character was stronger already. You know, uh, one of the things that led to the, um, I don't know, tension in the climax was the fact that it was Eddie that was captured. You know, he's this weak, drunk character, and Bogart is always looking after him. Yeah, what is the history there? So did Bogart know Eddie before he became a drinker? Because <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that line about at he one was, point he was yeah. So he knew him. He didn't. It wasn't just I. I have heard stories about this guy. Uh, it sounded to me like they had a long-standing relationship that predated his alcoholism. Interesting. Well, in a way, then Eddie's character in some way almost mirrors Rick because I feel like there's like a something similar with Rick where somebody was like, he may not look like it now, but that guy was one heck of a man. He's over there drinking. Um, but, I mean, I, to me, the character didn't work. I, I don't think the way it was intended to work. I didn't find him particularly funny. I almost felt weird laughing at him because a lot of it, I was like, is he, like, ill like it's supposed to be funny like well they i mean alcoholism in general is treated uh, with a lot more uh um but know, it wasn't just and... the fact he was an alcoholic he had a really bad memory like and he thought he had a great memory but i was almost like i don't know is this the beginning of dementia or something with this character but it was supposed to be funny like i don't know I don't know. I guess it was just stemming from his drunkenness. That's what that's what I think they thought, but I think nowadays maybe somebody watching it might actually think it was the beginning of dementia. Feel a little bit like, why are we making fun of this dude and his dementia? I mean, uh, they did make him likable. He was a sweetheart, so it's not like they made this like horrible character and then made fun of him. But I don't think the character worked for me. Okay, that's the. Uh, uh, but let's go back and focus, I think, a little bit on Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. Because I remember when I first watched this movie, I was drawn to that chemistry between the two of them. 
and kind of went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole on their love story um, because there was a big, they actually did end up getting married. Yeah. And there was a pretty significant 19, 20 year old, 20 year difference or something. Uh, yeah, I would have been at least, I think she was only like 19 or 20 when this movie came out. And Bogart would have been in his mid 40s, I think. So it was probably like around 25 years. 25 years. I was off a bit there. Um, so I also know that she went on to remarry. And at least once, possibly twice, and get divorced again. Um, when she was with Bogart, their marriage ended in his death. Right. Um, she subsequently, in interviews, really seemed to... Who's her second husband? I'm not sure. Well, whoever he was, might want to look that up. Get on that, on the Wikipedia. Um, the Wikipedia. <laughs> That's a new thing now. Um, she said in subsequent interviews that her, her, the love of her life was Humphrey Bogart. Like, she was, she kind of seemed to not like the, the next husband and really, really went to bat for how, like. Oh, Jason Robards. Yeah, he was an actor as well. I knew he was famous, but yeah, she actually had like interviews later on, um, pretty much saying the only time she was ever in love was with Humphrey Bogart, and she was so lucky that she got a taste of what real love is, and all of those statements were after her marriage with him. Kind of seemed a bit like telling this guy, you sucked. Um... Yeah, according to Bacall's autobiography, she divorced Robards mainly because of his alcoholism. Alcoholism again. It's yeah. just ding, ding, ding. <clears throat> but um, I just, I guess I thought that was interesting how, how much he meant to her. Like, even years after his death, like, she's talking about that was her one true love and pretty much um, kind of almost seemed like she wanted to forget ever being married again. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, he died like fairly early on in her, like they, he died in I think 1956. Um, so it would have been 11 or 12 years into their relationship. Um, but then she lived for another, what, like yeah. 65 years, close to that. Um, so, you know, a long time to go without your soulmate. That would be, but also, like, I guess, do they have, like, a really good marriage? I mean, if she's reminiscing on it and stuff. They had two kids, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think they did. Um, so their marriage must have been... And how do the movies play in? Like, do they get married after this movie, or do they do another movie? Like, they had a dating period? Uh, well, they did. Uh, I'm not really sure what the timetable was for their relationship, but, yeah, they made another movie with Hawks um, shortly after To Have and Have Not, uh, The Big Sleep, which uh, didn't come out until 1946, but I believe it was shot in 1944, and they held off on releasing it because it wasn't, well, because World War II was um, kind of in its, it, 
um, kind of final stages. And so Hollywood studios were wanting to rush out all of their war-themed movies before the war ended. And The Big Sleep had nothing to do with the war. And so it got held uh, until 1946 after the war was over. Um, Hawks must have really enjoyed working with them. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm sure he decided who was cast in his movie. Uh, well, if he didn't, he certainly would have had a say in it. Um, but, yeah, the, I think this the movie was popular enough, and um, Hawks himself had enough clout, um, and The Big Sleep was based on a popular novel. Um, so, um, I actually prefer that film. Oh, really? Speaking, though, of novels, this film has a special place in history, in film history, because of its relation to Ernest Hemingway and its relation to William Faulkner, correct? Yeah, just a weird piece of trivia, because um, Hemingway and Faulkner, arguably uh, the two greatest American novelists of the 20th century, uh, were both associated with it because obviously Hemingway wrote the novel it was based on and then Faulkner contributed to the screenplay. Faulkner had gone to Hollywood to make a few extra bucks. Yeah, so right there, that kind of puts it into a place of watch it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to play what is, I think, arguably the... Most quoted line, most thought of line when one I don't even thinks... think it's arguably. I mean, this is the line that everybody associates with the movie. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> fine, but I'll play the line that everyone associates with the movie. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Let's try to do that scene. All right. <clears throat> you know how to whistle, don't you? <laughs> well, let me try again. I can't look at you when I'm trying to imitate. You know how to whistle, don't you see? Just put your lips together and blow. You had the easier part. I did. Yeah. yeah. I did the Peter Lorre impression last You time. did do the Peter Lorre. Yeah, and you actually probably did way better Peter Lorre than I did. Do you think that's Lauren Bacall's real voice? She must have made it more gravelly for the, like... I think she tried to make it a little uh, more sultry. Than... Yeah. Although, <coughs> um, she did kind of have a bit of a gravel voice when, um, I, she was in the newer, um, Orient Express... Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. And I felt like her voice was a little bit... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like she adopted a totally different voice. I just think like, <clears> she <throat> may have punched <laughs> it up a little bit. Um, and then that scene was actually uh, parodied in a Looney Tunes cartoon, which yep. you love. And you might want to share one of your favorite parts. Yep. The Call to Arms. Um, Great name. Yep. The whole short is a lot of fun, but the, uh, um... Especially after watching. Like, yes, I would advise everybody, go watch the Have and Have Not, and then 
watch Bacall the Arms, the Looney Tunes short, and they'll just, I'm, I don't know, make you laugh. You don't have to act on these things. You don't have to do anything. Not a thing. goodness that is hilarious i wonder okay I'm, I'm gonna have to go back and listen just to hear my impression versus whoever did the voice in the cartoon for Lauren Bacall's character see who did it better maybe maybe do a vote people are actually listening to this better. you think i was better oh yeah nice oh that's all i need i don't even need to go back and listen now um so the film ends on a somewhat happy note. Oh, I'd say it's um, really happy considering the circumstances. Considering the circumstances, but the fact that um, I guess I have concern for the French Revolutionists on how do you say that? Um, Martinique. Martinique. Martinique on the island of Martinique because um, you know. Captain Morgan and Slim and uh, Eddie, they all leave. Cricket and Frenchie and the rest of them are there. And you know that whenever the fat cat guy, the bad guy in these movies is always a fat cat. No, I'm kidding. I guess the fat cat guy in Casablanca wasn't really a bad guy. But the, I don't know what you would call him, the authorities when they get out, I mean, Frenchie's going to be in a lot of trouble. Like, they know all about the, how he was helping the French revolutionists. And Steve even makes a comment, they're going to burn down your hotel. And Frenchie didn't seem particularly concerned about it. I was, I just thought he should have been a little concerned for his neck. Like, he was just like, we'll build it back bigger when, you know, France wins. And I was like, dude, they're going to kill you. (laughs) Like, Right? I mean, they shot at... They got a bullet at one dude. There was that... In the very beginning, Johnson's character dies because he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time in the middle of this... Uh, I'm calling call it revolution. I don't know if that's really what... It's the free French movement. I don't yeah, know that it was... A revolution seems... Right, because they were pushing back against... Right. I, the Nazi-installed regime. Right. So, um, but... Yeah, I would assume Frenchie just becomes more overtly involved with the yeah, free French. Yeah, he found like I would hope that the network he had had to help him and his mom, and maybe even Cricket, like go underground for a while, right? Like that would be the idea. You guys are, we're gonna leave. You guys go underground. Bye. We'll come back, and hopefully your movement has um, made more progress, and we'll visit your nice hotel. Um, I mean. So I guess the I guess you it does end on a happy note because we know how the war ended. So you can just assume Cricket. Who who was Cricket's character? That because that piano player he was an actual celebrity at the time. It was Hoagie Carmichael. Yeah, he was a um, really popular uh, 
singer and songwriter. I'm really gonna have to check out some of his work because I did enjoy his character and his music in the film and the singing. I was yeah, everything about that I was like, I need to check that guy out. Um, but yes, yeah, so I suppose since we know how the you know we know we can read the history books and we see how the war ended, so we can assume that everything did turn out okay. Right. Well, and it's also, again, kind of harkens back to Casablanca. I mean, at the end of Casablanca, I mean, is that a happy ending? You know, Bogart is right. going off to... This is a little different, though. For Bogart's character, it does seem pretty happy because he's leaving with his new girlfriend. Right, but um, it sounded like they were still going to be involved at least tangentially with the free French and going to Devil's Island. It made it sound like, uh, you know, they weren't just going to Oh yeah, that's true. go off to some tropical island. But he got the girl. That's the big difference. Bogart gets the girl in this, ca- in this case. Um, but he didn't really have anybody to take the girl from him. It seemed like her character had just come out of an abusive relationship or some abusive family. So she was all alone. It's not like in the other where his girl is married. Sure. You know, so that was a little different. Oh, that was, that was different. <laughs> um, there's also, I think, a cute little nod to Hawk's I think, believe it was Hawks and his wife because their nicknames for each other was Slim and Steve and they put that in the film, which I want to know more about that. Why was his nickname Steve in real life? I don't know. Like, is that his middle name? Uh, I don't know what his middle name is. Google. Time to Google this. You can see we do our research. Um, I'm not finding, I might have spelled his name wrong. I didn't spell his name wrong, but I don't know what his middle name is. You say Hughes, it's, it's Howard Hawks. His middle name's Winchester. That's actually kind of cool. Well, I don't know why she calls him Steve. That seems kind of (laughs) kinky. Hey, here's my husband Howard. I call him Steve. Uh, Yeah, I don't know what the origin behind that is. Just a cute little in-joke. Yeah, so basically this is the beginning of a relationship between Howard um, Hawks, Humphrey Bogart, and Lauren Bacall. And they continue with this um, in their next film, The Big Sleep. And then after that, does he make another movie with either of them? I don't think he ever made another movie with either of them. I, I don't know why. Um, I do know that there was uh, some 
you know, Hawks was um, kind of known for being uh, kind of a womanizer in Hollywood. Really? Yeah, and I believe the rumor was that he cast Lauren Bacall in part because he was interested in her, um, but she wound up being interested in Bogart, not Hawks, and so there may have been some sort of resentment there. Well, um, this just ruins the whole cute nod to Howard calling his wife Slim <laughs> and her calling him Steve. That little womanizing prick. What? Yep, he was referred to as the Gray Wolf, I think. Ew, his, dude. Because of his, like, white hair, gray hair. What? I, I would find that insulting if I was him. <laughs> I mean, not the gray hair part, but wolf. That seems like a... Like, like a predator. Yeah, like what? a predator. Like, you're not known for, like, wooing women. Women. You're... You're known for stalking them. <laughs> like, what? Uh, yeah, okay, well, darn. See, I thought that I, because I knew from reading about the film that actually his wife was the one who um, pointed Lauren Bacall out to him for casting. Yeah. thought she would be, I wonder if it's like, I don't know, like, I wonder if a lot of, Spouses to people in positions like that just kind of, I don't like know that they're doing things and they don't care. Uh, yeah, I, I can't speak to their specific situation, but I would imagine a lot of that went on. I mean, uh, yeah, there are lots of stories of womanizing within yeah, Hollywood of that time. A lot, so. uh, but like, um, I don't know. It, it there's a lot of stories about that, but I think it's like weird when the guy's married. Uh, I don't think it was that uncommon. Really? Okay. Well, <sighs> bummer. Yeah. So when he cast them all in the big sleep, he knew at that point she's with Humphrey Bogart, right? Because Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall gets together. In production. I would assume so, but again, I mean, The Big Sleep was made really quickly after To Have and Have Not, so it may have been cast during production of To Have and Have Not. I wonder what that was like, though, because if he was, if the director is trying to get Lauren Bacall, you know, interested in him or you know, trying to twist her arm to have some sort of relationship with him, and she's with Bogart. Like, I wonder if Bogart was... Like, I wonder at that point, like, there has to be some insider knowledge as, like, Bogart was like, dude, that's my girlfriend. Well, yeah, I would assume that um, Hawks... Uh ceased any advances after it became clear that Bogart and Bacall were interested in each other. Is that the only way for, like... <clears throat> it's just sad because it seems like if you are in that predicament, then and hopefully things are changing to the point where right now you could blow a whistle and people would care. But at that point, it would be like, if you weren't dating Humphrey Bogart, you would... 
this person could be like, you have to be in a relationship with me or I'm going to destroy your, like, you know what I mean? Like, it sucks that she would have to rely on a relationship with another man in order to make the first predatory dude actually just do your job. Yeah. You know, like, I've heard something similar, I think, with Gwyneth Paltrow and Brad Pitt. I, I might well, have that the wrong. Harvey Weinstein story. Yes, I think, it well, I, I wasn't exactly sure if Gwyneth Paltrow was the girlfriend of Brad Pitt at the time. Yes. That's who I'm thinking of. Okay, but yeah, where Brad Pitt got wind that Harvey Weinstein was being creeper or... Some From what I remember, Gwyneth Paltrow is the one that told the story, and she said that, um, you know, she and Pitt were dating at the time, and Weinstein uh, had made some kind of gross advance or something um, to her. Uh, it may have been whenever she made Shakespeare in Love, because I think that was a Miramax Harvey Weinstein production. Um, but anyway, so she had told Pitt about that, and, um, Harvey Weinstein happened to be at the same party at, on some, you know, some random Hollywood party or something, and, um, so Pitt confronted him and, uh, you know, told him to, I, mean, I don't know what he said exactly, but, uh, made some kind of threat and told him to keep away from Paltrow, and she had no further trouble with him. Yeah, and I mean, good for Brad Pitt for keeping the slime ball away from his girlfriend. But it sucks if that's the way things work. Like you, if you want slime balls to get away from you, then go date the biggest starring man in Hollywood, and now the slime balls are gonna because not everybody would have that option. So it just thinks that the woman can't just tell. Like, it can it just be, she doesn't want to have a relationship with you, dude. It's over. You know, it has to be, oh, shit. She's got a boyfriend that's going to kick my ass. I guess I should. Yeah, it's... Uh, or a boyfriend think... that I can't ruin their career. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have the control over this. Yeah, I think it's been a, a big problem throughout the history of Hollywood. Probably more so in classic Hollywood um, than it has been in the last... 15 or 20 years. I hope so. I hope that's the trend that we're, we're inching slowly, which is the sad part, but at least toward a trend of, of people knowing to treat everybody like a human being, you know, yeah. <laughs> like this is how, this is how pathetic we are. We have to actually make this the, a rule here. Treat people like people. Okay. That's all. Carry on. But, um, I think with, all of that being said, then that means that the next film that we should discuss in this series for Humphrey Bogart would then kind of seem like it should go to The Big Sleep. Any excuse to watch The Big Sleep is a good one. All right. Well, and also, would that be his next film? Hawks? Then? No, Bogart, since we're on him. Um, his, uh, From, like within his filmography? or Yeah, and within, we just did to have and have not. What was his next film? Um, the Big Sleep probably was the next one that he shot, but like I said, they sat yeah, wait, on it for it two years. So um, I'm trying to think. I'm sure that there were one or two movies that were released uh, within that interim. Well, next time we're going to visit The Big Sleep, 
And we'll also do our homework and see where his relationship with Bacall was at that time when during that filming. So that's all for today.